So welcome to WEMcast with me, Owen Walker. In this session, we're going to interview Jonathan Povey on humanitarian action and conflict. Jonathan is a former ODP, so Operating Department Practitioner, who's had an extensive uh, background and history in humanitarian warfare and conflict in multiple regions, multiple areas, multiple missions, and uh, in multiple contexts. So Jonathan, welcome to the podcast. Thank you very much. So, Jonathan, what I wanted to do, mate, if possible, is just really dig into your background or also into your um, your perspectives, really, uh, from your multiple missions with multiple agencies, really, multiple NGOs. And just number one, sort of how you got into uh, humanitarian aid from from a very sort of non-formulaic background, really, from from being an ODP, but then yeah. just looking at some of the context as well. So if we could just start maybe how you got into humanitarian aid. Okay, so how I actually got into humanitarian um, as a humanitarian aid worker, and I think it was actually 10 years from the anniversary of when it was the original tsunami. Um, I think it was about 2013 or 2012. So anyway, uh, sorry, in 2012 it was when they actually announced 10 years after the anniversary, the UK have decided to go and create the UK emergency medical team, and that was part of UK Med. And I think it was before it was actually called UK Emergency Medical Team, it was called the International Roster. And this was much smaller of an organisation where it was and developed. And that's how I got on board. I remember um, Googling it, I applied, didn't hear anything for a while. And then um, I remember that later on that year, then I started doing my training. I think it was about 2012 it was. And I started doing my training, started to understand about humanitarian action and what happens. And the thing is that I remember doing this course. I remember I was talking to these people and it was like Tony Redmond and there was Amy Hughes and they were absolutely inspiring talking about the stories talking about what they did and that was my initial first start on the, the initial stages of getting into humanitarian work that's fantastic so as you started on that on that journey in 2012 what was your first mission and uh, how did it sort of look and feel on the ground so my very first mission, I, I look back now, and it was very, very naive. So uh, the original first one I went out was, well, the first one originally I was potentially going to go on, which is one thing I learned very much as in the humanitarian sector. You never know what happens. You're either going or you're not. You're on the bus, you're off the bus. The first one original stand-up was actually the Gaza conflict, the 50-day war. Now, it was my first time. You're very eager. You want to go. You're checking emails all the time. And I think it wasn't until like a week later that stood down. That was in 2014. But not long after, actually 2015, I don't even know my years anymore. I'm getting old. But in 2015, that's when they had the first major earthquake. Well, they had a major earthquake in Nepal over in Kathmandu. And I was deployed there at the time, part of the UK EMT, but always save the children. And that was my first response. And that was kind of like how it's going to be, what your visions is, and how you're going to run as a humanitarian aid worker. Um, you know, you kind of have your vision, you have your training. And usually what you're, when you get there, the situation can be very different. It can change very rapidly. And you have to be able to be flexible to respond to these kind of um, hot disasters. Because sometimes you may arrive, you're not going to be hitting the ground running. Sometimes you have to hurry up and wait. You get there, the WHO are going to have their committees, and then they're going to mobilise you to the, the areas that you're going to be required. And sometimes that might take over a couple of days. So you can get there, it could be quite frustrating, but you'll be sitting there waiting until you can get the notion of 
being mobilised. So originally I was out there uh, with uh, Save the Children. So part of the job at the time was to go and set up her emergency field hospital. However, there wasn't a need for another field hospital because they already have a few that's responded. So what the requirement was then is actually go and have a look at these other surgical teams and have a look, go through, do need assessment, find out what's missing so they can make their work sustainable and we'll actually start providing them the equipment like surgical equipment, tools, autoclaves, and to try and get that as a sustainable and get that facility sustainable. So that was my first major step. I continued to stay longer and I started working with the, the, the primary health clinic over in Nepal. Um, again, so this is something that I've never done before. This was my a very big challenge for me, um, which I had to kind of be brave and then just kind of think, right, I need to just get stuck in. So as you sort of arrive in country, just not only on your first mission and or second mission, what, but just on any mission, what should people be minded of, uh, Jonathan, when they first come into country on a humanitarian mission? So the first thing you've got to kind of, when you're first going to go into, um, it also varies. It varies on the types of response you're going to go to. And that's the thing you've got to be mindful of. Whether you're going to be, it's going to be a disaster to an earthquake, to a disease outbreak could be very different. For example, if you've had a major earthquake, you're going to have imminent disaster structures. A lot of people have health facilities are going to leave. Um, where you're going to have a disease outbreak, that could be another different kind of approach, as in how are we going to go and respond? Is it, you know, are we going to start doing more education and training? Are we actually looking after patients? Um, and it's also to go in and to understand what you've got to understand is the culture that you're going into. Um, there's one thing that I learned when you're going across, especially through the Middle East, um, cultures can be very different. For example, if you're going to go to the likes of like uh, North Africa, their Islam could be very different to what is in Iraq. And again, could be very different to Saudi Arabia. So each country that you're going to go to, the religion and the context could be very different. Their beliefs are very different. The food, even the food context could be very different. And you need to kind of know how to manage and how to adapt and to definitely, out of anything, get the national people on board. And it's their country, it's their facility, you're there to help them. You're there to support them. You're not there to take over and you're there to empower them. That's your main focus and your main job. It's really interesting, actually. Um, one thing you just said, you know, you could run the same humanitarian mission uh, five times over. And if you, uh, depending on the time in which you come to the mission, you could have a very different experience because you're right, it could be quite developed. There could be a whole number of um, specialist teams on the ground and your, your, your part is to form part of a cluster. Or you could, you could be, arrive very early and it's, you know, it's very much in its primacy. Um, it, so it, it almost, it could be a very different, every time around you deploy, depending on the, 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 the time in which you arrive in country and also what resources are all already in country. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. You know, that's the thing is, you know, what you what you have in your mind and each mission that you go to. And even though it could be a disease outbreak and there's all different types of diseases, whether it's an Ebola response, whether it's going to be diphtheria, whether it's going to be COVID. Some of the technicalities and the IPCs could be quite similar, but then the whole, you know, looking at the, the culture, the people, beliefs, um, 
can be very different. So looking at some of your missions in the past, so you talk about the indigenous population. I think it's absolutely vital that you write there's integration and, and empowerment. What, what are some of the challenges you faced actually with integration and empowerment from some of the indigenous populations? There's one thing that I learned. Um, I was working with, a, with a, a, a fantastic, inspiring doctor who actually got me onto this, you know, and it was uh, Dr. Louise Baxter, who's worked for Save the Children, who now works for MSF. And I remember working with her and she told me about the local people, communities. And after the earthquake in Nepal, uh, we went down to, uh, they allocated the village and we had to go and do a need assessment. So we went there, we went to go and speak to the community leader and she told me how to, how to adapt, how to manage and how to get them on board. And it's vital that we have to uh, adapt to their cultures, their way of life. And I remember going into this room when we took the shoes off into the small little hut and we sat there. They had offered us drink and she was explaining that we work for Save the Children. We're here to help. We're here to come and support. What can we do to help your people? And that was the key thing. And I saw what she did was beautiful. It was elegant. It was welcoming. And I think that straight away got the community leader on board. And from that, we can start looking and looking at areas that have been affected, areas that have not had access. Um, and I think that is the key thing, is is how you address this as well and how you're going to go in. But you also got to take consideration, for example, if you're going to be, you know, if you've got like a female community leader and you're going to go up and there's two male, you've got to make sure, look at your gender, make sure you've got a male and a female, all those kind of things you need to, as what we take for granted, as something that could be very important culturally over there. Um, so I think that's one of the things that I learned for my first one that I learned as well, um, in my perspective of learning with indigenous people, and this was the Nepali people. Um, and the other time that I think I remember when I was working over in Iraq, over in Mosul, um, and I was quite, when I first arrived, I wasn't quite sure what to expect, but when I, um, started meeting the, the, the Iraqis and they were, they were absolutely fantastic. And, you know, I was expecting to be more of a, how can I say with a culture, more of a conservative kind of culture. But when I went there, you can see that there was much more, it, they were very tight people, very stressed people. Um, they were quite relaxed in their culture. And that's one thing that I, I found quite, um, you know, I had to get, kind of get them on board as well. But they were, they were very welcome and very open with that. So it is vital uh, to summarise that really, and I think it is you know it's important that we got to be open-minded. It's their country, you know. You work with them, you help them, and you support them. You're going to leave them in a service that is better than it's left that, that you arrived in. So, just looking at some of the domains of practice for, from for someone who might not be familiar with humanitarian, uh, the humanitarian sector, could you maybe just speak to some of the main domains of practice uh, that you would expect uh, to be working alongside some of the colleagues and some of the specialities? So, it's absolutely vital that when you you want to be aware that when you go out, as if you're deployed as part of a a health team, you know, you are going to go out, they are going to deliver health. But it doesn't just come with that. It comes up with much more challenges. Um, uh, I'll give you two examples. So one example is actually when I was back in Nepal, I was sent to go and do a primary health clinic. And as we set up this primary health clinic, uh, we had the doctors, we had nurses and paramedics. But it wasn't, while they're continuing to go and do this, part of your job was actually go and speak to community leaders, find out have they got a school, 
have the uh, looking at school, looking at the education side, is it still functioning? They're also going to be looking about how people are going to cook, eat and drink. So while this facility is going on and running, so what I would do is, is go and start finding out what is happening in the villages, how things are managing in the village. And also I'll talk to the women um, because they're the ones who usually tend to manage the financial, um, the household money. And they're the ones that probably tell you about the food, where they get the food from. And if that's no longer functioning, what's their other options? And by this can give you the details of how you can go and help that village. Not from a health side. For example, if a school has been taken down and there's no longer got an education service, the children then can be in a situation, be vulnerable of human trafficking. And this is why it's absolutely very vital that we can go and get, for example, a school. If we can get a school, we can establish a, uh, an education system. The kids can go in, they can be able to eat, they're safe. We can also keep an, an eye on their nutrition. And also with that one, that's going to give an opportunity for the family to start recovering, to start building their households. So this is why it's important that you've got to look at other areas like education. Has it got an education? No. Well, let's create an education or a child safe space. And another thing you need to be looking at as well. So at the end of this report, I would start looking at this data and thinking, OK, how many patients seen? We've seen 150 patients. What am I looking at? Going through the register and I could start seeing a trace of things. If I start seeing diarrhea and vomiting, diarrhea, diarrhea, then I got to start thinking, OK, what are we looking at here? Is there a water source issue? Do we need to start looking, doing a report, get water and sanitization up there to provide them equipment that they're going to go and use to cook with? For example, if their house has gone and collapsed, where they're going to get the water from is coming from a stream and that could also be contaminated. You want to get them clean water. You want to give them equipment that they can use then to start to cook with, that they can go and clean the water, bore the water. And by this is actually going to be reducing um, the, uh, an outbreak of things like cholera. So this is why it's important as part of a humanitarian organisation is to work closely along with um, child protection, looking along with education and also working along with uh, water and sanitisation and hygiene. Because you cannot have a response if you're only just going to keep an eye on your area. No, that's, listen, that's fantastic. And, you know, some of those domains are absolutely essential. And, you know, ecosec as well, economic security, uh, like you said, health is a fundamental. Um, a, a colleague who um, um, actually is my is, is my flatmate at the moment is uh, uh, looking at um, healthcare and detention and also restoring family links uh, and protection, the prevailing protection in the area or not. You know, what, what are the community uh, subject to? What are some of the protection risks? And, and you're right, all these feed into what we would maybe normally take for granted and, you know, the set of assumptions that we, we have in a normal, stable environment but can't be taken for granted in, 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 in an unstable environment. Yeah, absolutely. So, yeah. So, just looking at, as we as we move on through, uh, Jonathan, just looking at teamwork because you know teamwork makes up so much of humanitarian aid. Um, I just wanted to sort of dig into your experience of team dynamics um, from deployments from around the world, really, because you you know you've been on multiple missions across the world what what is your experience of of of, of team dynamics how sort of important are they to the wider functioning of a, a mission uh, yeah i think uh, teamwork is is absolutely vital and you've got to have people on the right page 
Um, you know, there has been, you know, I've done quite a fair amount of deployments and there is sometimes where you get a challenge of, you know, where people who are relatively new to this and who don't have that humanitarian context of whether, for example, if they're going out there, they're only kind of keeping themselves with their own local, you know, for the, with their own kind of Western people, not integrating, not eating. And sometimes it causes that divide between you and them, you and them. And it doesn't get that trust. And it's vital that you've got to get that trust on board, you know, and you've got to kind of do that. And that's one of the most fundamental things is how you do that, you know, how do you... I've seen it before and I've seen in a, in a few and a couple of organizations, um, I won't mention any names of my previous organizations that I've also worked for, but there's been challenges with some members of staff and I've, I've you know, where, for example, you know, you're working with a national staff and you've got to be absolutely aware that you're, when you're working with these national staff is this, you know, these people have gone through either a major earthquake or they come from a conflict and you've got to be there to support them, to empower them. You know, and you've got to give them a bit of lead weight, you know, and you've got to sometimes take that bit of pressure off. They're not going to be, they've already gone through a lot and they probably might have lost their family as well. So you've got to be a bit, you know, relaxed about that kind of thing. So you've got to kind of just take that bit of sit back. So uh, teamwork, yeah, dynamic. And I think it's also, again, is to part of the teamwork is is to listen to people's opinions and listen to people's voices because it's... I'm sure you've been there yourself and sometimes, you know, who is the best leader? If just because the person may shout more or be louder when they speak doesn't make them the leader because sometimes you can get the, the person or the person who's the quiet one is the one with the ideas and one with the answers. And it's important that you're going to make sure we get those kind of views on board. Absolutely, absolutely. And that, that sort of inter-team collaboration. But just looking at collaboration for a second... Uh, Jonathan, um, and we spoke to sort of the global health clusters that the WHO have set up. Um, can you maybe speak to your experience of maybe uh, collaboration? So not not maybe intra-team, but inter-teams. So your team collaborating with another INGO or team on the ground. Could, could you speak to how well or maybe not so well that's worked in the past for you yeah so usually i think this is this has worked quite well where previously is i think there's been a few occasions sometimes where as an organization we'll go into go and support so i recently worked for save the children and went to malawi to support their country ministry of health going in as a technical advisor um you know sometimes they don't need like the big whole sing and dance field hospitals what they actually do is, is actually get it like another, have someone to look at the policies, look at the procedures and think, actually, this is what we can go and do, or this is the best way to go and manage these kind of clinical of the patients. Um, and I think that is that kind of need. And sometimes if you go an organisation, for example, International Office of Migration, and if they've got like a massive surge, and, you know, what we can see now in South Sudan, and we can see that with uh, the Rohingyas in Bangladesh, and sometimes they may say, right, we've got a massive surge now, we do require a health facility and then they'll probably get another organization or humanitarian organization to calibrate, to support them until we can get them, until we can hand that over with the national staff. So yes, I think it's a probably, it's an, it's an interesting way of working and then it's a great way of working. Um, and I think the, the beneficiaries, you know, it's, um, it's, it's good for them really, because you're going to get more of a quicker, faster, skilled, team in the right place at the right time could you speak to some of the most sort of significant clinical challenges that you've had on deployments and or mission 
Oh, right. Where do I start? Where do I start? They could write a book on this, you know, and this, you know, of uh, the challenges that they have. I remember the, one of the first major challenges that I actually had was when I was over in Nepal and set up the health facility. Um, and everything was, you know, it was running well. Everything was all kind of tickety-boo and ticking over and we do making really good impact. Um, and what was the, the challenge was, and then all of a sudden, I remember just being on this thing and then we heard this big boom birds flew then the ground started shaking i thought it was another aftershock but it was fierce nobody could stand then all the buildings around us started collapsing then we had a 7.3 earthquake and we were kept in the epicenter so i was on this mountain looking after the they were the nepali staff and they got the nepali doctors and we had people queuing you know with the public health and what was happening at the time is people, this was two weeks, maybe three weeks later on after the first earthquake, then they had the second earthquake, the 7.3. And people at that point were already on top of the buildings helping the reconstruction. So we had people start falling off with broken, we literally falling off and like a clusters of uh, broken ankles are coming through. And you know, your primary health clinic, you know, so what we have to do is referrals, but the roads around had landslides. So we don't know what's safe and what's not safe. But these aftershocks that we were having, I think, we were having were 6.6 earth you know aftershocks and this was going on for the scale of over hours upon hours so access we couldn't get anybody up on the access to to come in to help us escort these patients out so what you have to do is you have to understand their culture what is their normality what is their culture so if you've got a person that's coming in with a fractured ankle and i thought what options have i got really so it was literally strap them up give them a paracetamol and ibuprofen because we've got no other kind of uh, pain relief because we're just a public health uh, PHC and start sending them down on the back of a motorbike with, you know, with an ankle, with a fractured ankle, you know, and you do think to yourself like, okay, let's have a look at the, the safety context of this. If this was going to be in this kind of country, sending somebody off with a fractured ankle, that would go down like a bag of sick. But when you've got no option, and when you've got no ch no other support, you're not going to get ambulances. You've got to start thinking a bit more outside the box. And also, again, you've got to start thinking about their culture. Now, this person was probably been on a motorbike ever since an early age. And they the way that they get by is on a motorbike. So all this is all normal to them. For me, it isn't. But I have to understand this is normal for them. To stick her on the back will be okay in this context. And you have to kind of like where you're up in your head, you know, and that, that that's a lot of things you have to kind of um, take your, you know, your background, you know, the challenges. Um, so that was probably one of my first kind of clinical of the challenges. I mean, second clinical of uh, challenges that I had was actually um, when I was in, in Iraq and the Mosul was captured in 2014 by the Islamic State and that became the Caliphate. So we were sent in to deploy to go and liberate the people. Um, uh, with a set of health facilities, part of the WHO and the United Nations Fund population, uh, to go and set up health facilities and obstetric units around the facility. And there's one thing that the challenges I had, this is one of a very big uh, clinical challenge, was doing cesarean sections, because usually we tend to do them under spinal. Because the bombs had been bridged out, uh, the bombs had gone off on the bridge, uh, the bridge had been bombed, we couldn't get supplies in, we couldn't get things like vasopressors, so we ended up have to do what the Iraqis were end up doing the section under ketamine. Um, you know, this is why we had to think clinically outside on, on how we're going to go manage this. 
And the other challenge that we also find, not just looking after them, you know, with them and just treating them with a section with clinically, it's a variety of patients that you get coming through the door. That is the clinical challenge. Because, for example, if you've got somebody who's, you know, been, you know, um, for example, if you've got a Yazidi woman who's been captured and been through the, been as a sex slave, unfortunately, then the kidnapping, you can sell them around. That's what they were doing. They were selling them and passing them around. And if they come to you, um, with the product of of, um, of rape, you know, and you've got this poor young person that's coming through, who's got the, who's having this child. You know, you got to give them the emotional support. You know, and refer them to the right organisations like the United Nations Fund Population, which is is fantastic. And you have got to give them the right kind of care that's needed, the psych, the, the sociological um, support they need. But the challenges would be is, for example, if she decides to go back home to the Yazidis, they may not be able to accept her in her community because she's been affected or, you know, she's been, um, she's got a child of, um, that she's been raped by the Islamic State. So one, they may accept her, but they may not accept the child. And there's sometimes in these facilities, you may be left with these children. And that's one thing that what the challenges was that you'd be, have a ward and you would start filling up rather quickly with abandoned children and these children could be from uh, newborns and these children could be where they've had a suicide vest and exploded but have only gone and burnt the arms and the chest and they're coming through and you treat them and you won't even know their name and then you've got to start doing working interclating with other organizations to making sure because you're going to need support on this you're a health facility but you're going to need child protection. So once that child is, comes into your premises, you're legally responsible for that child and you're going to need help with this. So organisations like Save the Children, where they've got a, you know, fantastic child protection, ICRC have got the reunification as well. So you're able to go and have that kind of, create an area, a safe space for that child. So that those are challenges that, that you, you can come across. Um, and, you know, and the thing is that, the advice I was going to give you away to talk about this is there's other organizations out there who are specialist in these. So you're not just going to be on your own. There is other organizations who are specialized in this kind of line of work who can support the organization that you're working with. That's fantastic. And like you said, it really does mandate you thinking outside the box, not only from, like you said, from, from clinical pathology in front of your face, but, you know, lack of diagnostics, um, absence of sort of joined up care and mm. many more concepts. So you, you're absolutely spot on with, uh, with, with that. So could you, the first time I met you actually, Jonathan was, was back in sub-Saharan Africa in Malawi actually. And, um, could you speak to some of your humanitarian involvement in sub-Saharan Africa? Because it wasn't just that isolated event. You've been back uh, a couple of times and uh, been involved quite extensively. Yeah, so I've recently gone back, um, you know, uh, like Malawi is, it is like as we met, we're in Malawi. And it's a fantastic country to go to, you know, and it's, it's a great thing. So we went part of the uh, support with the Ministry of Health for the COVID response, the COVID-19 response. So what they needed basically was like technical advisor, have a look and see what they're doing with them, how they're going to manage these clinical patients. Um, there's a country that only has 20 ventilators in the whole country. So, and as you see where I work currently at the Queen Elizabeth Birmingham, you know, we've got a hundred attentive care beds 
When it was our peak of our capacity, we had 230 ventilated patients, as well as over a thousand on the ward. Now, if you can imagine a country that only has 28 ventilators, they don't have CPAP and they don't have high flow nasal oxygen. They have now, but it's very limited. They're not, you know, they don't have the, the clinical skills or the training. So part of your job then will be going through is having a look and thinking, okay, what can we do to make this facility workable? What we can do to try and help to make them survive. You want to be able to do the, what was the three things. You wanted something that's going to be simple, that's easy to deliver, and that's going to make an impact. So you want to have a look at their O2 therapies, how they're delivering the oxygen, are they using the right equipment? For example, using uh, rebreathers and when to titrate it, when not to titrate it. And also again, to go and teach them to do simple techniques of going prone. Um, and it was, because a lot of the things are quite unsure on how devices work. For example, if you've got a rebreather, that's got to work between 10 to 15 liters and anything less than that, it becomes insufficient. And you've got to kind of go through back to the basics and talk about um, equipment and how it works. And also, when you're also looking at this one, it's not looking at the devices, the medical devices that you can be providing. You've got to go down to the very scratch and literally go through the whole healthcare, you know, these hospital facilities with a tooth comb. So if you go in a room and there's a load of O2 concentrators, but they're broke. So what you've got to do is then you've got to think, okay, how can I get these fixed? We need to get an engineer out. We need to get an engineering contract. And we need to make sure this is sustainable for the next 12 months. And the hospital are going to go and take her on. So if you've got 50 O2 concentrators sitting there, they're going to come in, they're going to fix them, and they're going to get them working again and in service. So it's not just going in and helping patients, but it's finding something that's not working and how can we make this healthcare system functionable. And that's what we did. And that's what we did from, uh, you know, covering throughout the country, all the major centres. Um, it's It was, it was a, a great way that you can go in and buy simple techniques and have a, a big impact. So that's a massive point, actually, Jonathan May, because like you said, the, 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 the impact you can have and uh, using not only just not necessarily simple techniques, but essential techniques and, and bringing it back to, like you said, the fundamentals, um, making sure it's clear message and the dissemination of message. But something you just said there, which is absolutely vital, is the continuity of message and continuity of intervention. Uh, because it has to be bigger than you, has to be, it has to last longer than your your presence in 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 country. Um, so just looking at, we've you've, you've spoken about some of the educational interventions and some of the involvement in in Malawi. Um, just sort of panning back for a second, and um, because I'm in the humanitarian sector at the moment, you certainly are. How does someone start on that journey that might be listening to this that might not be like you said the formulaic you know the you came from the operating department that's fantastic how does someone maybe come in from a very different perspective and different angle um and or being a paramedic how do they how would you gain access into in, into this sector from your perspective I, I think that is a, that is a, a really good point because usually, you know, internationally, they tend to, you know, I mean, not just about the wards know where an ODP is. I mean, they work with us every day and they see us every day knowing what ODPs are and, and what we do. But sometimes I think it's they just sometimes they're just, you know, unaware or 
of what your actual title is. So, if, you know, bad enough for the host was never mind, you know, non-government organizations. But how you have to do this and to refashion it, or what I did myself is, is actually look and thinking, okay, I'm an ODP, but they don't know where an ODP is. So what you do is you refashion yourself as a specialist in a surgical environment. So, for example, I went off and I go and did medical logistics. So I can go through and, you know, step in as a medical logistician. And I did my medical log logistics training. Um, so I can go and work. I can know our equipment. I know exactly what's going to happen. And it's great because then they've got somebody and says, we need a surgical kit. And I know exactly what they're going to need in this kit to make it, you know, feasible. And people said of somebody who's non-medical going in to do medical logistics, but unaware of what actually you know, what equipment and what, how things work and why they need it. And also to think about, you know, how are you going to make this also, what they're going to use is make it sustainable and reusable. And I think that's what I had to do is refashion my name in a way that the fact that I'm a specialist in a surgical environment. Um, after working in Nepal, I realized when I came back, there's so much that I needed to learn about the WHO, about the coordination meetings, about culture, culture sensitivities. And then I just, this is why you got courses like, you know, the World Expedition Medicine, you know, with the uh, humanitarian principles are able to kind of give you the fundamental basics of that. You know, you can learn your, 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 your primary basic, your, your basics of humanitarian response. And I think every time you go out and you learn when you come back, you learn, you're thinking, actually, we could have done that differently. Actually, maybe I should have loved a look at this. And you, you learn when you come back. And when you go out again, you become better, you become braver, and you become stronger. That's fantastic. So just looking forward now, so we look back at some of your missions. Um, just looking forward, what, what plans have you got for, for future missions and or deployments in the uh, short to midterm? Well, that's the thing is with the humanitarian sector, really. You know, what is your plans? And you don't even know what your plans is, because sometimes things can change very quickly, very rapidly, you know. Um, for example, you may get confirmation, the potential deployment, and you could be on the bus, off the bus, on the bus, off the bus. I'm sure you, you know, you kind of been there, you know, we're going and we're not going and, and situation can change. And also, what's my future plans? To be honest, I've, you, you don't know what your future plans is, but what happens is you, you do, have an observation of the news, of the political, and you can kind of, after you've been on a fair amount of deployments, you actually start sensing things. When you start seeing things happen, you kind of think, oh, oh, you know. Say, for example, is going to be like a 7.9 earthquake. If 7.9 earthquake in Chile, well, you would know pretty much it's a well-developed country, it's well-structured, very unlikely. They would have a humanitarian impact, but it'll be very sustainable and manageable in that country. But if I know, if I get an alert for a 7.9 earthquake in somewhere, for example, like in Pakistan, then your sense we could be thinking, ah, we probably need to keep an eye on this one, really. And that's when you tend to get a bit more of a sense about where your humanitarian needs are, what there is. You know, where there's going to be an earthquake over in the middle of an ocean to, is a good phenomena to where there's an earthquake in the city where that's going to be a disaster. It's knowing the difference between that, really. So where my future holds, I'm not sure. Um, but, you know, you see things are changing very rapidly. And, as, you know, you watch what's going on currently over in Tigray in Ethiopia. That's one of my colleagues who's currently working over there at the moment. Um, you know, things are changing very drastically out there, you know, and that's one thing that I'd be kind of keeping an eye out is what's going on over in Ethiopia. Um, 
for my own kind of personal reasons, but you know, you, you, this would come into the category of you, I think you'd need to probably observe because you just don't know you could be there in a couple of weeks. So, and that's the thing, you know, it could be, it couldn't be. So, but sometimes you have to just kind of take a sit back and just enjoy your time because you just don't know what's going around the corner. That's absolutely so true. That's so true. And so just looking finally as we come into land on the conversation, really, you've mentioned a few really great salient learning points, really, for people listening around that behavioral flexibility. So just being open and flexible uh, because the situation and the context can mandate so many different sort of things from you. You've also mentioned around um, equipping yourself with plenty of sort of adjunctive courses that will allow you to be more adaptive in that environment, such as surgical uh, logistics training, such as uh, the World Extreme Medicine course, such as um, looking at um, advanced wound closure courses, uh, just a whole variety and card array of courses which will make you so much more maybe dynamic and uh, and malleable in your skill set as well. And so just as we finish on the conversation, is there anything else you would advocate but that, that, that from a sort of generic uh, principles perspective that people should maybe embody or adopt as they come into come into this environment. Yeah, yeah. So this is quite a tricky one. This one. So what is it that they need to adopt to uh, when they're going to come into this kind of environment? I think you've got to be in a situation where if you are going to go into this line of work, but when you do go in, you actually realise you're all surrounded by the same kind of people, the same like-minded people, you know, majority of them. So, and it's also, you've got to be able to in situation to, to learn. And also what works for the NHS will not work in these kind of criteria and these, this concept. What, what you would do, you know, professionally or how things, what you deem as, you know, not safe in this country. But when you go to these other countries, you know, sometimes you may not have options you know this could be you know first of all if it's going to save our life and that's the only option then you may have to go and you know be a bit more braver and to step outside that box so there's a lot of stuff that that there's there's things you've got to be quite flexible with um i mean for example you know i've never done primary health clinic before in my life you know and i when i was told i was going to do primary health clinic and here's your team and off you go bye bye and that's a wave me off into the distance into the mountains and I've never done this kind of thing before. And it's kind of thing, well, sometimes we've got to be that kind of brave. You've got to be that resilient and you've got to be able to, you know, trust the people, the national staff that you're working with and it will be fine. Yeah, listen, that's fantastic. And that not only that flexibility, but you, like you said, resourcing the team around you. I've certainly had to learn after a 20 year career in the NHS, coming out of that, you just said something absolute, which is absolute gold, which is, you know, the context you're in will not work if you're in an NHS mindset or a very fixed mindset, uh, an institutional mindset. It, it, it is not going to be the same. And that's what I've had to do is just lay my preconceptions down and lay my expectations down um, and just and just really sort of realign to to the context, really. And that, that be, realigning that baseline is, is absolutely key. And that, as you said before, comes from good briefings, good in-country awareness, good good awareness of systems and processes already in place, um, what's culturally accepted and normal uh, versus what you think is ex- accepted and normal and just, just coming back to that baseline. So that's absolutely key. 
Listen, that just that just leaves me to say thank you so much for your time today. Um, I really, you know, having worked alongside you and known you for a while, it's been fantastic just to pick your brains on this subject. So thank you, Jonathan May. You're very welcome.